You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Red Dead Redemption 2, developed and published by Rockstar Games. Red Dead 2 is a prequel to Red Dead Redemption and follows the exploits of the Vanderlyn Gang across five fictitious states in America in 1899. Players take on the role of Arthur Morgan, Dutch Vanderlyn's right-hand man, and they guide Arthur's decision-making during the gang's final days. A warning to players of Red Dead Redemption 2, This episode contains spoilers for the entire game, and also considers the entire plot for the first Red Dead Redemption. Listeners beware. Red Dead Redemption 2 marks the latest in a long series of historical games developed or published by Rockstar. Although it is a developer synonymous with the contemporary Grand Theft Auto series, Rockstar Games has a long track record of publishing historical titles, including Red Dead Redemption, L.A. Noir, GTA Vice City, and GTA San Andreas. Joining me on today's show is Esther Wright. Esther is a PhD candidate in history at Warwick University. Esther is currently writing her dissertation on Rockstar Games and American History. Esther, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining me. So I was wondering if you could kind of, before we jumped into talking about Red Dead 2, if you could tell us a little bit more about your general research on Rockstar Games. Yeah, sure. Um, so broadly, my PhD and the kind of the bits of research that I do around it are is about the way that rock stars games engage with American history, as you said. So that's a very broad topic. I look specifically at Red Dead Redemption 1 and L.A. Noir and a couple of the old Grand Theft Auto games in passing. Um, and then generally how they construct their representations of the past and usually how they construct them by way of cultural history and especially American cinema. But the focus more particularly is that I look at the way the games are marketed, um, how the games are essentially grounded by Rockstar in certain kinds of information or discourses before players even have the chance to to kind of get their hands on them themselves. So Mm. looking at the way that they're grounded in historical narratives, historical, you know, facts, quote unquote, information about the past, um, really just sort of looking at how Rockstar manages expectations, how they perform this sort of role of historian, how they try and give themselves the authority to tell these stories and curate these kind of what I call discourses of authenticity. So it's very much industry focused um, and tries to essentially combine study of the historical narratives that Rockstar curate both inside and outside the games themselves. Mm. And you've seen a lot of this kind of promotional material for Red Dead 2, as well. And in fact, famously, Dan Hauser, uh, the kind of lead writer for the game, has uh, on the one hand stated, oh, he did all this research for Red Dead 2, but also states that it's not a historical uh, <laughs> narrative. And so I'm wondering, what do you think of that? I um, As soon as I read that quote, I feel like I just, it was really interesting because, yeah, like I said, I, I spent all these years um, writing my thesis on the way they try and construct history and refer to facts and evidence and truth and try and make these big claims. Um, and when I saw that he'd said that, I was like, really? Um, <laughs> you, you know, like, 
are you really I mean it's this interesting binary division between sort of like proper history and historical fiction and I really think he's like it's quite an old-fashioned attitude to have um but I think it's a way of them being able to yeah have these historical representations and claim that they're authentic but also shy away from any criticism that they might have it's kind of protecting themselves a little bit um from the inevitable things that they think they're going to be they're going to be leveled at them yeah so given your research uh, on this topic and rockstar games more generally what do you make of this new game red dead redemption 2 and in particular how do you think it compares to rockstar's other historical games so I think, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that we could sort of broadly talk about. Um, I think for one, the tone of the game, it was very recognisable, obviously, as a rock star game. But from the beginning, you know, I was expecting this opening sequence or, you know, these opening cutscenes that sort of really like set this, you know, set the scene and did kind of humorous things or, you know, told us things about this world in the way that, you know, Red Dead 1 and Ali Noir and GTA, you know, it's kind of, they kind of, these games are known for that. Mm-hmm. But the opening sequences, they were just really sort of like somber and really sad. And it sort of set up this game that felt just kind of like it had this sort of sincerity to it. Um, it felt less sarcastic than a lot of Rockstar games. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were moments when, there were moments in certain missions where this completely broke down and sort of like Rockstar's hand broke through and you were like, oh, okay, um, I, I see this now. And there were some genuinely funny missions that I was surprised kind of entertained me as much as they did and felt like you were playing a Grand Theft Auto game. Like, mm. um, I can't remember the name of it, but the one where you take Lenny into, I think it's Valentine and you get drunk. And yes. Slim. I yes. just like still, it's one of those standout missions to me that was like, oh yeah, this this just feels so classically rock star um and it was doing something completely abstract and away from this big historicizing thing it was just this moment that you were supposed to enjoy i think um Mm -hmm. but yeah it had this kind of deep sadness that i felt red dead redemption one didn't have it had this kind of snark Mm -hmm. that even though it was trying to grapple with these big things like the death of the west and then you know the passing of the outlaws it was still very kind of jokey or you know yeah tongue-in-cheek yeah 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 what I also felt um was this game it felt as though they were sort of showing rather than telling if that makes sense yes um there were a lot of instances in Red Dead 1 specifically and you know in in most of the games where you'd be having conversations with characters that were really sort of on the nose about historical events um like I'm thinking in Red Dead 1 of Drew McFarlane or you know, where he's just talking about like these big things that have happened and it was just telling you about history and how they got here. And mm-hmm. there's moments of that in this game, like certainly, um, and you've got the typical rock star thing of doing all this historicizing while you're riding and, you know, moving from place to place and having conversations, but things feel much more kind of abstract and unspoken. And I think it's a positive and a negative. It sort of allows it to kind of build the sense of this world and where it is historically. But I think there are specific consequences to doing that and it all being a bit more abstract. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things about Red Dead 1 that makes Red Dead 2 feel so strange is the fact that Red Dead 1 is so obviously kind of a piece of genre fiction, right? It is really leaning heavily into spaghetti westerns. It's leaning really heavily into Peck and Paws, The Wild Bunch, Whereas this game seems to have a little bit more distance away from those kind of uh, cinema 
inspirations. And I was wondering, you know, did you get that sense at all? I mean, do you feel like this game is kind of leaning into American cinema in the same way that uh, Red Dead One or L.A. Noir did in the past? Yeah, it didn't, you know, there were moments, like I think there's one mission and I'm sure it's it's almost identical to like one of the, the scenes in um, the assassination of Jesse James. Um, mm. but so, you know, there's obviously moments and you can't get away from that because it's the Western, right? But mm-hmm. it did feel, I, I've been trying to, this is something I've been thinking about actually and I've been trying to put it into words. I think with Red Dead 1, there was more at stake in terms of selling a Western game because they hadn't really been, they've been pervasive, but they hadn't been as like blockbuster successful as Red Dead 1 was. Right. Um, and something that I look at in my thesis actually is the way that on the Rockstar Newswire, one of the things that the Rockstar did to sell Red Dead 1 was they kind of curated this series of you know recommendations of films to watch and they all sort of really thematically linked up specifically to different things that red dead was doing so brutality Mm -hmm. masculinity you know all these kind of things but i feel like with red dead 2 i think there's less at stake um Mm -hmm. and they've sort of won themselves essentially the authority to tell a story um about america's west that is obviously still positioned in the Western, but doesn't have to lean into being strictly genre fiction so much, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. I think is is really interesting and really kind of, um, there's a lot at stake with that. The fact that they are now seen as having the authority to tell their story. But I think, you know, as you said, the fact that so much of the, the substance for this franchise is drawn out of, you know, Peckinpah and, you know, Clint Eastwood and Leone is that, you know, revisionist sort of brutality and violence of its cornerstones and their historical awareness and cultural awareness comes from a very particular period in Westerns and the legacy of that can still be felt in this game. It's kind of enshrined. So it means that they're channeling an image of the Western um, that's essentially crystallized around white masculinity and it leads to this yes. kind of complete marginalization or othering of anyone who doesn't fit into the image of hardened male outlaw, which, you know, is a problem or, you know, a thing across Rockstar Games, you know, this is the kind of the character they feel comfortable writing, um, but it has a special sort of relevance for the Western. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely dead on there. Um, you know, I think you're right in saying that it almost feels as though the Housers don't need to rely on cinema so much, but at the same time, like you said, they are still kind of carrying over a lot of these uh, themes and hallmarks from, uh, Western cinema from, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, which, you know, for anybody who studies it knows that, you know, that cinema is really obsessed with the Vietnam War. And so a lot of those themes and ideas, you know, for scholars, for cultural critics, it feels very, very old and very, very out of place. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you look at kind of more recent Westerns, um, they've kind of moved past a lot of those things. You've got them a lot more uh, female heroines, uh, for instance, in Westerns now than you used to. And uh, there's yeah. a lot more place for people of color uh, in Westerns, which definitely wasn't always the case, but I'm not sure how much Rockstar has kind of moved along uh, yeah. with the times uh, in that mm. regard. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. So speaking of those topics, uh, this new Rockstar game attempts to deal with more serious topics in American history, uh, including women's suffrage racism, uh, and native rights. How well do you think they've done 
in these respects in Red Dead Redemption 2? <laughs> I mean, do you want to just go through them in tone and <laughs> just sort of talk about them? <laughs> um, Whatever you want to do. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'll line them up and you can knock them down. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because, you know, I have this sort of quite big section in, in my research that is um, looking specifically at these kinds of things. And because I have this specific focus on promotion, um, I was kind of looking up until the release of this game as to what kind of image we were given and what it then eventually delivers in the game itself. And mm -hmm. especially with women, I found this quite disappointing, or if not, you know, frustrating. Mm -hmm. Especially, I mean, this is this is stuff that I've been thinking about um, kind of recently. Especially with um, the women in the camp, um, mm -hmm. because you know, of, of all the women you get, they are, I mean, probably the most developed. And especially these characters that you sort of knew were going to be in it. Like I'm thinking of Abigail. And, you know, she's around camp all the time. And I really wanted to have conversations with her. I wanted to, you know, get to know her away from being like Abigail Marston um, in, this, you know, in, in Red Dead 1. But she seems to basically have two gears, which are being worried or annoyed about Jack or worried or annoyed about John. Um, and, and that's <laughs> yep. like the extent of the interactions you can have with her. Like, oh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. I'll leave you to it then. Um, I find that really frustrating. You know, considering that all these women, you know, were, were kind of, when you had the um the sort of the promotional images of them to introduce who the gang were who this kind of family unit was they were all sort of like really hardened and really you know um red, you know, rough and ready and ready for action I, I don't think what was kind of sold is really what you get um mm -hmm. and I think this is is especially um obvious with with Sadie Adler's character um yes when you know i was like okay i'm getting into the game now right where's sadie i want to talk to sadie and you have to the thing you have to do is you have to rescue her <laughs> i mean it's it's frustrating when you know all the kind of male outlaws come kind of fully packaged and they're all ready to go and they're already outlaws and they don't need any explanation she has to go right. through this kind of like trauma and it has to all be about her husband and revenging him um, and pres and presumably her rape as well. Uh, yeah, that's not explicitly yeah. stated, but we can assume that from yeah. the opening sequences. Yeah, it's just these very well worn tropes. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean the whole um, aspect of trying to engage in these more serious topics like um, suffrage. I think. I mean, yeah, that's it's a nice, I suppose, gesture. Um, considering that you know, in the first game, there was almost nothing, other than mm -hmm. that, you know, silent movie, which was talking about how, like, you know, don't turn Uncle Sam into Aunt Samantha or whatever it was. You know, but like how women get in the vote really emasculate all men. But you know, the mission where, you know, I'm thinking of the one where you have to where Arthur has to drive the wagon full of suffragettes into um into roads i think is, and protect them mm -hmm. you know it's it's you do it because you're trying to protect one of the the sons of the, the family one of the big families you know his girlfriend and then as soon as you kind of have a listen to what the lead suffragette is saying you sort of go and like have a fight around the corner and it's just this sort of bit of historical texture and background noise and i think what i guess is telling is um I, was, I mean, I, I've sort of been thinking about the legacy of, you know, the dastardly achievement in Red Dead Redemption mm -hmm. 1 and the whole thing about the YouTube video recently um, mm -hmm. 
Where, and just um, to a reminder, the the dastardly achievement is where you uh, tie up a woman and then uh, throw her on the uh, the uh, the train tracks to get yeah. run over. Yeah, you know, it was almost, I guess, almost baiting people to try and do the same thing. And the fact that that mm-hmm. was a secret achievement, you know, they didn't tell people they needed to do that. It was just, if you do it, this is what will happen. Um, but yeah, the, the whole YouTube controversy recently about the guy who, who in Saint Denis, one of the one of the suffragettes and you know beating up this like annoying feminist um and there were videos of you know the play, uh, players feeding her to like alligators and it's just it's kind of put there and you know i guess dead in a way so they can say look we tried to you know we really tried to you know get this broad sweep of representation of these things that were going on and yeah that's true but you don't prevent anyone from basically just rubbishing it um, yeah. because it's all it's all up for grabs it's all it's all fair game and I think just in general like I played this game it took me a long time to kind of get to the end but I played it quite rapidly um, I kept getting distracted all the time by different things you know different side missions and stranger missions but in doing so I felt as though I felt that the bare minimum about a lot of these characters and about the women who I did meet you know, whether that was optional or not, I sort of felt a bit disappointed. And I guess that left me feeling that interacting with women beyond kind of a surface level or finding out anything more deeply about how they feel and their experiences is essentially up to the player. Like it's optional. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you felt that too. Definitely. I mean, and I totally agree with you that the the missions involving the suffragettes seem rather throwaway, right? You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's something that's kind of happening in the background, but not something you actively have to uh, engage with or really think yeah. about. Um, you know, I think too, uh, the kind of issues regarding racism at the time, uh, yeah. a lot of that heavy lifting is done uh, by characters in the camp like Lenny uh, yeah. and then also yeah. Charles. Mm-hmm. And Charles in particular really kind of stands out as this really attempt to diversify the cast where they have uh, somebody who is uh, uh, half African-American, half native. Uh, He brings it up all the time. Uh, And it's not something that you as a player really have to think about. Otherwise, you know, you know, there might be some kind of tension there, especially within the gang, but there's not. Um, And I think it's funny too, that a lot of those instances in which Charles or Lenny talks about those issues come in the context of banter while you're writing to and from the camp. And so it's Mm -hmm. almost like a way to add something in to give the player something to do while they're riding around. Because there is a lot of sequences in this game. You know, it's a very deliberately paced game. There's a lot of sequences in which you are kind of out there riding uh, with nothing to do. So I almost saw those as more of an attempt to kind of entertain the player a bit rather than engaging uh, with those sorts of topics. Yeah, um, it does have a tendency to feel very um yeah very throwaway in that sense um no, and I, I completely agree it's, and it's interesting because I in my notes I'd written I, I essentially kind of put Charles and Lenny in the same bracket um where you have this one major character that has to represent an entire history of white supremacy and oppression <laughs> which yeah, yeah. you know is yeah it, it's exactly the same as in Red Dead 1 where you have like um Nastas, who is you know basically the only Native American character you have any kind yes. of like interaction with, and you yes. know I 
I think obviously it's it's a positive that this game finally acknowledges Black Americans as part of the West. Um, yes. Because Red Dead One completely, you know, which I never really understood with Red Dead One because Red Dead Revolver had the admittedly, you know, he's nameless, the Buffalo Soldier as a playable protagonist. Yes. So they're yes. obviously aware of these kind of, you know, complex kind of historical, you know, people existing. But and yeah, you know, it's it does really just fall on Lenny and and you know to an extent tilly um but yes not really she is just completely sort of confined to having like one mission that revolves yeah. around her and and she seems otherwise to just sit there and play dominoes in camp yeah, and that's yeah. it yeah i mean i like the fact and i say like as sort of yeah i, I guess i liked it um when you <laughs> when you i'm trying to be i'm trying to be nice you know i understand i understand <laughs> when you're walking through camp um, I think when you get sort of to, oh God, the Shady Bell and the one before, which is, I've completely forgotten, but I think sort of chapter three. Um, oh, on the, uh, uh, on the Creek. Um, yeah, what's that um, called? Oh, oh, I don't remember that camp name. Yeah, we'll cut this um, out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ones basically as they're moving further and further Southeast. Um, it's yes. interesting that Tilly and Lenny, are visibly or they'll talk to you and they'll say they're uncomfortable the further south you go which i think is it's an interesting kind of ambient touch but again it's completely unexplored and is very abstract and you know, again lenny has some conversations with you about you know being the first one i think in his family to be free um and you get some sort of characterization from him but you know again the burden of representation is placed on like this one character who has to conform and fit into the story rocks i wanted to tell about white male outlaws and I think the way that they deal with the sort of the legacy of slavery is interesting. So I'm thinking specifically, like I wrote down in my notes, the the stranger mission, um, the iniquities mm-hmm. of history with Jeremiah Thompson, yes. the guy who you find, you know, sleeping on a bench outside a train station and he complains that I think like the government took his home and he's, you know, completely destitute and he sort of begs you to go and get his most treasured possessions on his kind of foreclosed, mm-hmm. foreclosed house. And I think, you know, you're supposed to feel sorry for him you're supposed to be like oh you know he's another broken dispossessed man he's a man out of his time like arthur and dutch and then you get to his house and you find out that he kind of his pride and his sense of like you know his life comes from the fact that he was a slave catcher um and then you know you sort of go to confront him and he you know it's revealed that he's this disgruntled post-civil war southerner um Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, obviously Arthur takes a moral high ground and is like, some jobs aren't worth saving and burns his, you know, ledger yeah. of captured slaves. You know, he, this guy is like crying, saying, you know, this is my history. I still exist. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know how I feel about this mission. And I suspect that's the point. I think you were supposed to feel kind of ambiguous about it because they set him mm-hmm. up as this another guy who's being you know, dispossessed by the government. And although the fact that, you know, you, you know, you put, the player in the right for burning the book and you get honor i think for killing him it's this kind of convenient moral disengagement that he's this you know this slave catcher and he's this relic of you know a time that is you know well past but it never actually mentions slavery explicitly as far as i can tell mm-hmm. um and it's up to the player whether they recognize when you look at the ledger what it means and its wider yes. ramifications you know it's so it talks about um you know the, the you know black people being recaptured and you know obviously refers to them as, as property in that sense but if you weren't aware i think i mean i'm not trying to say that the player is stupid but you know it's it's trying to kind of put so much complexity and so much so many issues into just this one kind of 
again, optional stranger mission. Um, yeah. It's one of those moments where they kind of put on some historical window dressing to make this mission mm. seem much more interesting to kind of give you a gotcha moment, but not really yeah. kind of diving deeper into those historical topics. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's setting up these sort of morally ambiguous situations and they're usually quite distasteful, um, but they leave it up to you to kind of infer or understand what you want from it. And mm-hmm. that's part of the problem that I have um, is that that kind of ambiguity often just doesn't pay off. Um, and it's like an inside yes. joke. They're obviously demonstrating that, oh, yes, we know this, you know, we understand this. This is look at you know, how smart we are. But actually, um, it means that they don't actually comment on it in a really mm-hmm. meaningful way. I um, think they, yeah. there are these instances of, uh, that I'm sure you ran into where you encounter uh, on the side of the road uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Uh, attempting to hold rallies. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a, at least a couple of these instances that I ran into in which uh, one where they are having an initiation, uh, burning a cross, mm-hmm. they end up setting fire to themselves accidentally. And you yeah. also gain honor from uh, killing them in that instance yeah. as well. Uh, and then also a later instance uh, in which they, uh, three of them are attempting to raise a cross uh, mm-hmm. outside of a city and uh, the cross actually falls down. Uh, on top of them, killing them. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that, you know, obviously the Ku Klux Klan uh, is bad, evil, right? Uh, you see people in white hoods, uh, you kill them, you gain honor, right? The kind of message there is obvious, but the historical context is really much more interesting because, you know, in places uh, like, you know, Louisiana, this kind of stand-in for Louisiana that you see in the game, uh, mm. the Klan didn't need to wear hoods, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The kind of express um, segregation, the kind of express denial of black rights that was instigated in the South meant that the police officers, right? The local officials were essentially doing the work of the Klan and there wasn't a need to dress up in hoods. There wasn't a need to disguise who you were. And I, I wish that that kind of idea was included in the game because it gets that kind of historical nuance that you're kind of talking about that's missing uh, from the game that, you know, it feels like there's more ambiguity there and it wasn't quite as, as obvious uh, to people yeah. at the time that, you know, Oh yes, of yeah. course, Ku Klux Klan bad. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's presuming a certain kind of hindsight. Um, yes. But actually as well, um, something, you know, that I was thinking about in terms of these things specifically is I was thinking about mafia three um and yeah adam adam chapman and i have done sort of some work on this kind of in the middle of writing this you know big thing or not big thing (laughs) an article on mafia theory um and it's something that we've we sort of talked about with that how essentially it reduces these kind of historical institutional sort of structural issues down to interpersonal conflicts Mm -hmm. so you know you take um several really bad civil war losers um or kind of individual racists or a couple of like inept you know kkk people versus you know lenny or um one bad army general against all the native americans and it makes it hard to kind of like mount this sustained acknowledgement or critique against what is basically a history of institutionalized systemic racism against Mm -hmm. people who are not white and these are not closed Mm -hmm. issues these are not things that just happened in the past you know they're still Mm -hmm. ongoing um, as we know so i think this is a problem that is is found across historical video games when they try and deal with these these kind of serious topics um Mm -hmm. 
it, it does end up reducing it all to conflict between individuals rather than something that yeah was perpetuated by government policy. And I would say that there is an instance in this game where you do get a sense of the negative aspects of government policy, and that's with regards to native rights. Uh, you know, there's kind of an extended part that say the last quarter of the game in mm. which you're engaging with uh, Rainfalls um, and his son uh, and attempting mm. to kind of uh, establish some sort of rights, some sort of um, space uh, for natives in kind of the northern part of the map, and in particular facing um, kind of strong resistance from U.S. government forces. Uh, I'm wondering, what did you make of those attempts to engage with kind of issues of native rights in the past? I mean, when I when I started the game, because I think – because I, I knew where it was going in terms of I knew that the end point would presumably have to be Dutch joining, you know, the Native Americans. Um, right. Because obviously that's the way you know, it kicks off in Red Dead 1. I was kind of like, not waiting to be disappointed, but I was like, okay, how are they going to negotiate this? Mm. You know, are, are they going to really try and do something a bit that unpacks it a bit more? Um, and then literally in, I think it's the, it's the first mission, sorry, the last mission of the first chapter when you're, you're driving from the the cabins that they end up in to Horseshoe Overlook. Um, and you get that moment where the three Native Americans appear on horseback and you get kind of like the palm pipe music. Um, and I, at that moment I was like, oh God, you know, just <laughs> like, I mean, I, and and you know you get Charles is sits on the back of the wagon and they sort of have a conversation, um, but Hosea um, you know talks about how badly they've been treated in the area you know like, and Charles is like oh you know is that any different from the way that they've been treated anywhere and he's sort of like no but, and he says something like I feel like I may be trying to simplify something more complex for our, you know essentially for our idiot driver for Arthur, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a really strange or interesting way of getting into talking about these things like i didn't know is that a comment directed towards like the player is that a comment directed towards white people you know is it basically rockstar signaling their sort of their wokeness like they know that you know these are really complex things um but then you sort of get nothing or almost nothing Mm -hmm. other than the interactions you have with charles until the i think until the party um where you go to angela bronte's house in yes uh, maybe chapter four, I think. Mm-hmm. That sounds um, right. Yeah, and you're sort of there on the on the on the balcony, and and you know Bronte, who's this Italian American, is basically saying that I think it's Rain's Ball who's there saying, "Oh, they're idiots! You know, how can you be so stupid as to get duped by Americans and lose your land?" And I was like, "Oh, okay, this is this is like one sort of minority kind of talking badly about another minority, but okay." And um, and then you went, Arthur sort of runs into Rain's Fall and Eagle Flies in the street. You know, even though I felt like I had played, and this, this is another problem that I have with this game, is that I felt I played Arthur so nicely <laughs> the entire game. <laughs> I was like the biggest goody two-shoes in the West. And then in all of these cutscenes, he's so hard and so horrible to people sometimes. And that was this really like weird moment of cognitive dissonance. But when he, um, yeah, he meets Rain's Fall and Eagle Flies and... He basically says, "Oh, I'm not helping you without money," and you know, you get Eagle Fly saying, "Oh, you know, another mercenary or whatever." But I don't know. Um, so when you get actually in, into the bit where yeah, you're doing things for the Native Americans, you are trying to sort of um, 
make gains for them and, you know, help them out and assist. And Arthur generally, you know, mellows over time and comes to believe that this is, you know, this kind of noble cause, obviously, because of course he does. Um, I think it's, it's just, try, it's tried to make something, yeah, very complex fit into the sort of the way that Rockstar tells stories. Um, the fact that you have to go and get the, the, um, get the documents that prove that this big bad oil baron is trying to move the native americans because of oil and all that kind of thing um mm-hmm. i mean i i think one of the slightly better things was the fact that you could actually go to the reservation in this game which i always had a problem with in red dead one was the fact that mm-hmm. the only time you get to go there is when you're going with the army to kill everyone yes. and i just think that was just oh it was yeah um but I find it very convenient that I think I think it's Eagle Flies who sort of says that oh the army's already taken all the women and children so basically what you're left with is sort of the old and infirm you know it's mm-hmm. this kind of it's not a nice place and I'm not saying that it, you know they should have depicted the reservation as a nice place but it's sort of it's like as if they've already vanished like it's already a done thing and it's this dying decaying place. Um, you know, it, it really doesn't kind of give you any sense of life. Or maybe it yeah. does, but only only in kind of the negative, the lost cause kind of way. Yeah. And it doesn't really stand on its own. I mean, for my money, it seems as though the Native Americans included in the game are kind of meant to establish things for Arthur in his characterization rather yeah. than for the Native Americans. I mean, you know, it has these moments in the last quarter of the game where you're kind of building up to this climax in which... Arthur stands against uh, Dutch and Micah, right? Mm. Um, and so it is a way, especially if you're playing as an honorable character, is a way to build up that honor, right? To kind of yeah. uh, help the natives with their plight. And then also, I mean, I think there's an obvious uh, parallel, which Dutch brings up many times, uh, Charles brings up, Arthur brings up, of this idea that really the gang and the natives are on the same side of the coin, right? That they yeah. are both yeah. kind of victims of this mm. uh, closing of the frontier of this uh, land that no longer needs them, uh, yeah. which, you know, to compare the plight of the gang, a gang of outlaws to the plight of native Americans is really kind of disgusting. Um, yeah. Conversely, I mean, with all of these things, and you've kind of alluded to it too, uh, with whether it's with uh, the, the role of women, whether it's the role of uh, African-Americans, racism, uh, native Americans, um, I, I suppose it's good that it, at least they made the effort, but I kind of wonder, you know, was it the best effort they could have yeah. made? Was it the minimum kind of cover your ass effort? Um, I haven't really decided yet, but I, I do think that out of these three, um, the issues related to Native Americans, the representation of Native Americans is, the, I think, the maybe the worst out of all of them. Yeah, Um no, I, I totally agree that, you know, essentially conflating the struggles of white Americans who choose to be on the wrong side of the law with yeah. Native Americans, this this very, you know, comparatively small group of Native Americans um, without really even touching the kind of historical, um, the historical issues, the, the, the awful things that were done, you know, this history of essentially ethnic cleansing, you know, mm-hmm. they obviously... But like this is what I was saying in terms of 
they just assume that people know this and i don't think mm-hmm. everyone knows this like i, I yes. it, it seems as though it's a it's a taken for granted statement yes. of fact that not all americans even are actually really aware of or care about um yes. and i think it's the whole reason why history respond exists yeah <laughs> well yeah um but uh and and it I find it really problematic that it leans into these sort of really kind of distasteful stereotypes, especially the sort of um, the noble savage kind of thing. Um, yeah. I I was I was writing something up on this the other day, and um, especially with Dutch and the way his character behaves and his kind of character arc, um, I was thinking about um, Philip Deloria's the idea of playing Indian. Mm, yes um, excellent book yeah yeah whereby you know white americans kind of try and negotiate their identity by by way of um native americans and the kind of appropriation and misappropriation of that mm. um and especially near the end it just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth it's on the one hand you know it's this idea that when civilized quote-unquote civilized society no longer needs him he turns to this quote-unquote uncivilized society um mm-hmm. so and also and it's kind of in this double bind of when he's portrayed by all the gang members as losing control and becoming paranoid and becoming more bloodthirsty and becoming essentially more savage he joins up with this kind of noble cause um mm-hmm. which or you know what he sees is this noble cause of the native americans being dispossessed and disenfranchised but at the same time you have these entire missions where he's like oh, I'm just trying to stir up, you know, trouble between the army and Native Americans and they'll blame it on the Indian problem and then we can escape to New York and then go to some, like, Tahiti or something. Um, it, it's like, it just, what, what you know, what they could have done to make, to you know, kind of correct what the first game did, you know, with just putting Dutch in with the Native Americans as, like, this really weird, like, oh, I can't understand, you know, did you only do that just so you could cover your back and have some Native Americans? They really, really didn't try and correct it. They just leaned in hard to these sort of mm-hmm. really problematic um, issues. And I think when I was listening, I was listening to um, the way the Waypoint um, Waypoint One Hundred One's thing on Red Dead Redemption that they did the podcast mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and I think it was um, Rob Zachney on that, and he sort of said something that really kind of struck me. I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly how I feel, and. He said that it feels like sometimes Rockstar's games don't understand the references they're making well enough to critique them. <laughs> and I thought that was just like, <laughs> it really kind of summed up a lot. Um, it, it really, it think, you know, the, the writers, they think that, you know, you know, they're, they obviously understand these things and they always understand that, yes, they are bad, but these things are not just kind of these easy moral disengagement factors that you can put out there and then like everyone will agree with you this is bad and they will understand this is bad you know it's such surface level engagement that yeah. in you know kind of consciously or unconsciously then ends up really holding up these really bad sort of tropes um yeah that you know have a foundations in racism yeah all right well let's uh let's try to wrap up here uh by talking about the ways in which red dead redemption 2 leans into realism uh, particularly with mm-hmm. regard to game mechanics um you know in this game the player is responsible uh for managing arthur uh his sleep cycle his eating habits uh in addition you have to kind of do the same thing for your horse and you know whenever arthur is walking around you get a real sense of 
his physicality, perhaps more mm. so than any other game I've played, where you've got hundreds and hundreds of different animations to express when he's leaning over, uh, mm. when he's you know brushing his horse, when he's uh, taking a swig of whiskey. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think of this move towards more realistic mechanics, more kind of realistic animations? Uh, you know, do you think that this approach is successful? Yeah, I mean, I it, it's it's interesting actually. When I was um, sort of starting out with it, and you know, and feeling these kind of these animations, feeling you know, you do get a sense of like Arthur's heft when you are moving. <laughs> Um, it really reminded me of, I don't know if you've played it, um, a Firewatch, where yes, I know that one yeah. of the things, yeah, one of the things they intended was that you kind of moved and felt like you were moving as like a middle-aged man, um, you know, on a very small, on a much smaller scale. But I think, right. yeah, it had an interesting, it had an interesting feel to it. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't dislike the fact that they've put this energy into doing that. Um it was kind of, um, it was frustrating um, the fact that I, like I said, I powered through this game as quickly as I could to get to the end with the intention that I would go back and restart it. And I found that it was frustrating in that sense. So I do think it's interesting that the game is basically engineered to slow you down. Um, mm -hmm. And now that I've started it again and I'm re-exploring places and I'm just doing it at a more sedate pace, I am kind of in enjoying the experience of it a bit more. Uh, because I'm not, you know, I'm not studying it. I'm not trying to get through mm -hmm. it really quick. Um, but I think, I think, especially in reviews that I've read, and I think this realism discourse is really problematic when we're talking about video games. Um, like using the term authenticity, it kind of works like mm -hmm. this, in intentional or not, this ideological cloak. Um, and I get that, yeah, okay, you know, this is the realism is the effort in creating realism is put into certain areas as opposed to with others, as obviously we've been talking about. Um, and I, I think essentially that it, it makes this game that revolves around spectacle and is essentially built from the details up. It's meant to be very sensual. It's meant to be very kind of atmospheric and experiential, but it's, it kind of feels skin deep at the same mm -hmm. time. So I'm not opposed to it. it. It also kind of reminded me, I think, of the way Geralt moves in The Witcher 3. Mm. Um, I felt like that was a, a kind of um, another sort of similar, similar game that I was judging this by the standards of. But I don't know, I don't know what it adds to the historical world. Um, yeah. I get what it adds in terms of details and gameplay, but it feels like that was essentially privileged over putting the effort into making this realistic yes. in other ways. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know what I've noticed in listening to a lot of podcasts about this from other uh, game critics, uh, reading articles is that so many of them say, you know, this is journalists here. So many of them say like, Oh, well, you know, this deliberateness to the mechanics is so great because it's so real to the time period. Right. You know, that it, it, it harkens back to what life was like, how slow life was mm. uh, in the late 19th century. And I'm sitting here just kind of rolling my eyes. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, well, you know, all of this time that we could have taken in 
you know, developing uh, a richer, more nuanced narrative, we spent in, you know, getting great animations for brushing your horse. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I totally agree. I feel like maybe some of those efforts, maybe some of those, um, you know, that work graphical work could have been spent on kind of more developed narratives. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, because the Hausers, uh, especially Dan Hauser, so intimately involved in the narrative side of things rather than the developmental side. I'm wondering if, you know, perhaps they felt as though they didn't really need an editor for the writing. Uh, whereas uh, with yeah. the kind of graphical side, they have felt free to kind of be very precise and editorial over those elements. Um, I don't know, yeah. you know, obviously not many people have a window into how rockstar games actually operates, but um, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated uh, to kind of learn more about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess my, my, my only window into talking about Rockstar and what they do is, is looking at these sort of these public discourses that surround their games. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I I do spend a lot of time kind of thinking about this and writing about this, especially the writing, the writing process. And it almost, I feel with a lot of, most of the games, actually, there's, there's this, not a sort of like fatal disconnect, but there's a huge disconnect between story and gameplay um yes in the sense that the story is obviously trying to do very sort of big grandiose things but actually um what and and rockstar are known for their stories you know we can't say that they're not but what what they essentially are also known for is their gameplay and there's this there's this conflict between wanting to give people like the illusion of choice and the illusion of like doing whatever you want. And, you know, these promotional discourses that are like, you know, you are completely free to do whatever you want, but they also, you are really constricted to passing through this very linear story that is very linear and does not actually allow for much room for nuance or for experiencing things in other ways. Yeah. And not just narratively, um, but also mechanically, right? I mean, yeah. there is a set path to finishing the mission. And if you yeah. kind of stray from those set paths, mechanically yeah. speaking, then you are going to fail. And then there's also, of course, the metal system in which you're rewarded for playing it in kind of a certain way. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, it's it's like the the illusion, yeah, the, this illusion of kind of freedom, Um is completely constrained by what it is you are told to do implicitly or explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like we should probably mention as well, this whole thing of um, when we're talking about engineering, the mechanics and the actual experience of the game, we should probably like, you know, at least mention sort of this whole controversy um, about uh, the kind of the crunch and the overtime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I find it really interesting that obviously, you know, there's, or there seems to be this kind of culture of of overtime and of making the game offer something very specific and doing that off the backs of you know probably yeah, hundreds of people you know all over the world and um, mm-hmm. in this kind of crunch mode but like you said the story is written by you know by Dan Hauser and you know and a couple of other people it's a very small close-knit writing team that is communicating a very specific thing and is not kind of subject to editorial or outside influence um i find that a really um interesting let's say sort of uh dichotomy i guess Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) i think that does it for our episode of history respawn esther thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me 